We're uh, reading chapter 13 of Genesis. It's entitled Abram and Lot Separate. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There, Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zohar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks very much, Alan. Good evening. Welcome. Let me pray. Father God, we uh, thank you that uh, you, you're with us, you're for us, you send us the Holy Spirit to be sure of your truth. And as we look at this Bible reading, it's uh, an old story, thousands of years old, uh, thousands of years before Jesus. Help us to see what you might want us to, to see today, that you might help each one of us by the Holy Spirit to know what it is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ today. Amen. Amen. I think uh, coming to church is great. I'd be in the wrong job if I thought otherwise. <laughs> I think, do you know, I don't know. I mean, Lizzie's, Lizzie's here. Maybe we can reflect with, with this with Lizzie later. I don't know. Some vicars, I get the impression they don't enjoy what they do sometimes. Must be really, I feel very sorry for them. I, I have a great time. I hope you have a great time too. It was a great time in here yesterday evening, wasn't it? I think people said it was great. Ross, I know he's nodding. He's, he's told me about four times it was such a great night. Um, he, that's how great he thought it was. And it's good. Yeah, it's because he did so well. Yeah, okay. Nearly perfect, yeah. But uh, I hope, uh, I hope uh, being church, I'm not just talking about services and things like that because there's good things there, but in terms of fellowship and being together, 
and doing things together. It's great, isn't it? And, uh, and it's easy for me to say, I mean, a lot of the time I'm in church meetings, but a lot of the time, if you look at how you spend your days, we're not here. We gather and we can have a great time. We can sing great songs or we can have a great quiz and do all sorts of fun things. We've got food next week. We've got a church lunch. Hopefully it'll be great. I'm sure it will be. And, um, and then we go out. And for many of you, and I have to think back for a while for myself, it's a different world for most of us from being here. Ever think being a Christian is to miss out? It's fine here, but when you're out there, you're kind of missing out. Those who aren't bothered about Jesus can do whatever they fancy. And they outnumber us. They outnumber you. I guess where you work, they'll outnumber you. And uh, often they seem to do better. They haven't got too many scruples about honesty because, you know, they're pleasing themselves where we seek to be honest for God. And that means they might be able to get ahead, take advantage. Look out at the world. Christians are more and more marginalized, aren't they? And that's true for us. To say you're a Christian might centuries ago have just been a normal thing to say. And when I may say Christian, I don't just mean the cultural sense that we're Christians, because I think a lot of people here will identify with that. But a sense of, I actually follow Jesus. And I believe the Bible. And I believe there is the Holy Spirit. And I believe the miracles are true. And I believe it all matters. To say those kind of things is to invite pity, a bit of ridicule, maybe even a bit of shame. Now, we're told following Jesus is a blessing. It's a wonderful thing, and I think it is. But often it can feel the opposite. It can feel like a a burden, a baggage, or even maybe the opposite of blessing, a, a curse. And sometimes in those situations, we might think, is it a bit much? We hunker down, we hide, and we just get through the day, get through the week, and then we pop out again on Sunday, and we go for it. And then back in Monday back wherever we go. It's hard. Abraham's story that we're looking at here in the Old Testament is like ours in many ways, uh, like ours. Because flip back over to, if you've got your Bible open, chapter 12, and you can see there at the top of page 13, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, lots of promises God has given Abraham. God has promised to bless Abraham. It says, verse 2, I'll make you a great nation. He's got a very little family. It's just him and his wife, Sarai. Abraham and Sarah, they'll become known. And it's just them, but his family's going to be a great nation. He says, I will bless you, says God. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse. You've got the blessing, Abraham. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He's going to be a blessing to others. And then down to verse 7, if you've got the Bible open, scan it down to verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this vast land, this land, it's for your family. Great promises. He's promised that he'll be a great nation. He's promised that he'll be blessed. He's promised that everyone will be a blessing and he'll have this land. All these great promises that Abraham is given. And what does Abraham do? He goes, ups everything and everyone to a strange place full of ungodly people. It says there in verse 6, right at the end, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Ungodly pagan folks there. And they outnumber him. They're settled in. They've got cities. Where is Abraham? He's living in tents, verse 8. He pitches his tents uh, between two places. And, and Abraham's living in tents. It's just a small family. And all these people outnumber him. They're pagan. They're ungodly. Abraham, he's followed God. He's upped and gone. Moved his whole family hundreds of miles. 
And for him, imagine what it would be like. God has made great promises, but on the face of it, they seem so unlikely. Where's this blessing? Looks like I'm outnumbered. I'm going to be crushed. I'm going to be destroyed. And the question is, will he give up? Will we give up in our faith? Well, we get into chapter 12, and just to back up to it, because we need to go into chapter 12 to understand chapter 13, which is our focus. But in the second half of chapter 12, we see God's promise is sure to come true. Because in the second half of chapter 12, Abraham deceives Pharaoh about his wife. He says, she is my sister. What is he doing there? What do you think? What is he doing with God's promise? He's doubting, isn't he? He's doubting God's goodness. He thinks, I've got to make sure these promises come true. I'm going to protect my own interests because I'm going to get killed. If they know I'm married to this beautiful woman, they're going to kill me. God has promised you'll be blessed. But no, I'm not sure about God's promise. They're going to kill me. And uh, yet, despite his dishonesty, Abraham leaves Egypt how? He leaves Egypt wealthier than when he arrived. Let's just look at chapter 13, verse 1. Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev. That's the south part of what we call uh, Palestine today. He went with his wife and everything he had, and a lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock, in silver, and in gold. The unique truth of biblical faith is that God does not bless us because we deserve it. Imagine Abraham leaving Egypt with all of this wealth. He got all this wealth because of the Egyptians. And yet he deceived them. He lied. He didn't trust God. And as Abraham is leaving Egypt back into the land God had promised, what is he thinking? What must he be thinking about God and his promise? There's no way he's thinking, God has blessed me because I've been so faithful. Because he hasn't, has he? He's been deceptive. He's lied. He's not trusted God, and yet God has still blessed him. That is the Christian good news, isn't it? We have not been faithful to God, and yet God has showered us with his love, covered us with the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sin in our place. Our rebellion paid for, and it means we are blessed because God's promise is sure, not dependent on our obedience. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. That is where we are, isn't it? We walk towards God's promise saying, I do not deserve your mercy, your love. I don't deserve to have your Holy Spirit living within me. I am so spiritually wealthy, even though I've done nothing to deserve it. How amazing is this God? So from verse 3, Abraham, from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier. He's still in tents and where he first built an altar to the Lord. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. No wonder God has been so good to him. It's as if he's learned from the spirits of Egypt that God loves him nonetheless, despite his faithfulness. God is amazing. We don't trust him so often, do we? We trust ourselves. We take matters into our own hand. We don't think his promises will come true. We often try and please people. And yet God has still blessed us. His promises being it is sure. And so what does Abraham do as a transformed person from his experience in Egypt where he's lied and yet he's come out blessed? Well, God's promise means he is generous in the now. He's generous in the now. Having so much stuff, you see, means there's a problem. Let's look at it in verse 5 because he's got his nephew Lot with him. Verse 5, now Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land, verse 6, could not support them while they stayed together. For their possessions were so great 
that they're, and they're that so, so great they were not able to stay together. Quarreling arose between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's. The Canaanites, Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. There's just not enough room for everyone. Abraham's got so much, and so is his nephew Lot. There's no space, not enough good, good grass. And so there's tension between the herdsmen. It's a bit like children who can't share their toys. You got that one? I, I see that on a daily occurrence. People who just can't share. It's not just children. Drivers struggle to share the road. Nations struggle to share the world's resources. We struggle to share. So what does Abraham do, verse 8? Abraham says to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, between your herdsmen or mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. You go left, I'll go right, and if you go right, I'll go left. You see, Abraham is so confident of God's promises. He knows that God is out to bless him that he doesn't claim it all for himself now. He's learned. He's, he's, learned, he's learned something of a lesson, hasn't he? And that makes him generous with the resources. See, God has said, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. Does Abraham hoard it then? No. He gives it generously. And he says, you choose. You can cut the cake and you can choose the biggest piece. How about that? That is hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us to say, you have things the way you want them to be in the now, in this life. It's hard to say to a colleague at work where there's a disagreement. Say, Actually, you, know, you take that desk with the window or whatever it is. You take that opportunity. That is a hard thing to say, isn't it? It's hard to miss out now, but we can do that because God has promised eternal life. So what do we say? We say, perhaps on the everyday occurrences, well, why don't you choose the film we want to watch? Or, well, I'm going away. Well, why don't you borrow the car? Or you, you just come around whenever you want. My door's open. That is the way, by the way, Christians lived in the first century. There's a book that's been written recently by a Christian uh, woman, and she does this, and she says the gospel comes with a house key. That means you believe the gospel, you can have a key to my house. That is the way Christians live. What is mine is yours, because actually what is mine is not mine. And I can share... And be generous now. I'm going to give what I can to bless you. God's promise means, means being generous now. H- how so though? Well, before we get to that, God's promise means what looks good now isn't always best. Isn't that what happens to Lot? Lot looks around. He's, he's given this option. He's, he can choose whichever What's the best plot of land that he can see? He looks around and he sees, verse 10, the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. It must have looked amazing. Fertile resources. Paradise is described as like the garden of Eden, the garden of the Lord. That's where humanity has been trying to get back to, if you like, since they've been cast out in chapter 3. What could be better? Where else would you choose to be? There's no place I'd rather be. And it's described as being like Egypt. That's the place of wealth, power, success. An amazing place. And it's a no-brainer for lots. Of course that's the best place to be. I'm going for that one. Thanks very much, Abraham. So verse 11, Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. And if you're Abraham, it looks like he's missed out. He's been swindled by his nephew. What is he thinking? It's obvious, left or right. I mean, it's like... 
chocolate cake versus, I don't know, dog biscuits. Which one are you going to choose? That's a no-brainer. What are you doing, Abraham? Come on. Looks like he's been sold a dut. A lot has cashed in. And who is blessed now? Who is blessed now? Come on, Abraham. What's happened to the blessing? But what looks good now isn't always best. What does it say, verse 12? Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. And if we were reading this as Old Testament Israelites, perhaps in the time of Egypt, we know that Sodom is not a place that you want to be. It might have looked glorious. Sodom, amazing city, technology, Wi-Fi, internet that works, not like the sticks. Power cuts, no. I mean, I'm modernizing it. Of course, they didn't have power, but you know what I mean. Had all the, the links. It was a place to trade. All the opportunities ahead of you. And it had fertile plains around it. It was a wealthy area. That's why it was such a successful city in those terms. But what does the author tell us, verse 13? Knowledge we need to know. Verse 13, the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Halfway through verse 10, we're reminded this is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That is coming up in Genesis. So it looks like the best land. It looks like it's the most amazing place you choose to be, but actually, it is destruction. And sin is like that, isn't it? Sin is like that. It looks really good on the outside. I once uh, saw a, a children's talk uh, in another church, and uh, the, the, I think the vicar, well, one of the vicars, there were a few vicars in this church, quite a big church, they were doing this children's talk. I had this amazing chocolate cake. Look glorious. The children were, I think they would have dived in if the parents weren't restraining them. Amazing, quite big, tall, wide chocolate cake. Glorious, amazing smells. Freshly baked, glistening chocolate icing. Then he cut it open, and inside it was dog food. Sin is like that, isn't it? Looks glorious, tempting, attractive. You've got to have it. You've got to take part in that. Join in. But then deep inside, it is not good for us. Might taste great to start with. It'll give you a stomachache, make you ill. And what might look good, well, sometimes it leads to ruin. But if we remember God's promise, eternal life in Christ, we will see that this world is offering a cheap, temporary, pale imitation of the permanent blessings. That's the thing, isn't it? Lot sees with his eyes, Abraham sees with faith. That is how he's looking at the world. He, he's not looking at the world thinking, yeah, I've got to have the best things now. I know God has promised something far better. There's this thing called uh, FOMO. You come across FOMO? Yeah, fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. I think uh, younger people uh, have a fear of missing out. Maybe you've got a fear of missing out. I, I know that experience, a fear of missing out. Oh, I've missed that program. Or I've missed that concert. I was at home group, as we now call them. Or I want to be more popular at work rather than have that awkward conversation about Jesus. Or I'll spend on that overseas holiday because I want to see the whole world before I die. I don't want to miss out. 
I'm not saying don't do concerts, don't do holidays, but it's possible for us to miss out and not be afraid of that because God's blessing means we will not miss out for all eternity. Eternal life will mean, actually, I've got the whole world, whole time, to see the whole world. I've got eternity. And there won't be lots of other tourists in the way. Much better. God's promise means that what looks good now isn't always best. We're not missing out. And lastly, God's promise means waiting and worshipping. Let's just look at the last bit of the passage, verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are, to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Again and again, what does God say? He says, I will. I will, I will, I will, I will. Not now, but I will. God's promise means waiting. We struggle to believe people's promises, don't we? Do, will people do what they say? They say they will. Will they do what they say? But God is not like every other person. What he says is certain. And his promise means waiting because he will. Not necessarily now, but he definitely will. So we wait. We struggle to wait. The government says they'll give more money. Pensions say this is what you'll get when you retire, how much you can expect at a certain age. And they let us down, but God's promises are true. And for Abraham, just him and Sarah, they've got no children. Yes, he's got wealth, but how on earth will his little family own all this land that all these people live in? So unlikely. But Abraham has faith. And in his waiting faith, he worships. Verse 18, Abraham went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. He worships. Abraham never himself received God's promises in his earthly life, but they came true centuries later. As the Old Testament story tells us, and we also will not receive the fullness of God's blessings in this life, because we have something far greater than Abraham, don't we? We have Christ. He died. He rose again. He promises forgiveness, eternal life after death. And that might seem unlikely. You share that with someone else tomorrow, where you work, or someone you, a neighbor or a friend, they will think that's unlikely. Most people you know don't believe it, and they don't live it. But we need to wait. Waiting and worshipping. This life will not fulfill our deepest desires. Nothing will until we wait and we worship and Jesus will give us all that our hearts desire, all that he has promised. We worship with every fibre of our being, every minute of our lives, thanksgiving and commitment to Christ Jesus. Are we missing out? No. We can be generous. We can know that what looks good now isn't always best. We wait and we worship. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at Abraham, we see what faith is doing to him. It's making him a patient person, trusting your promises so that he is generous. He doesn't need to hold everything for himself. He worships you as he waits for the fulfillment of your promises. Thank you for what Jesus has promised us in the New Testament. Help us to be sure of it, that we might be generous, worshipping, 
and waiting ourselves. Amen.